The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiate Anything. This show is produced by the American Negotiation Institute, and with over 5 million downloads and listeners in over 180 countries, listeners just like you have made this the number one negotiation podcast in the world. Hi, my name is Kwame Christian, and I am the founder and CEO of the American Negotiation Institute. Here at ANI, we believe that the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations, and we are passionate about providing you with the best content that will help you to make your difficult conversations easier, both at work and at home. Lastly, I want to remind you that we offer consulting and conduct trainings, both virtually and in person, all around the world. Our focus is in three main areas. First, negotiation and conflict resolution. Second, leadership. And lastly, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Check the link in the description below to learn more about how we could work with you and your team. And now, without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Manuela, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Kwame. Great to be here. It is a pleasure to have you, my friend. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? I wear multiple hats. So I am a somatic psychotherapist, and I teach globally on somatic psychology, which includes working with mindfulness, uh, embodiment, uh, our patterns of how we resolve internal belief structures. So as a somatic psychologist and teacher, I also write and I also work with uh, business executives and do team development and executive coaching. So a lot of education, teaching, therapy, coaching, a whole variety of things. Awesome. And can you tell the listeners about your incredible book as well? Books, plural, right? Yeah, plural. I wrote a book on mindfulness called The Eight Keys to Mindfulness, Practical Mindfulness. And then I also wrote a book on somatic psychotherapy tools, which is geared for people who are therapists or coaches who want to bring somatic psychology into their work, which was really about embodiment. And then I'm also finishing a book on movement and how to bring movement techniques into the therapy or coaching space as well. And then I'm working on another project, which is uh, around uh, somatic psychology and psychedelics. So how to bring embodiment techniques into the psychedelic process. Well, you know, I use audiobook, but I'm, I'm not even finished mm. with it, Manuela, because I had to take a second. I need to, I said, let, let me slow this down. But I already have, <laughs> I'm probably, uh, I'm over halfway through it. And I, I uh-huh. kind of just, I, I went on a binge so I, I within a week of meeting you, yeah. I was over halfway through that book and approximately 30-ish pages of notes, single space size. Oh, 12. wow. It's so wow. good. So oh, listeners, that's so we'll, sweet. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thank you for writing it. We'll put the link in, in the description for <laughs> that book. And it wasn't until I met you that I learned about trauma-informed leadership, which I thought was such a mm. fascinating concept. Can you tell the listeners about mm-hmm. that? Sure. Yeah, this is a program that I developed uh, with a company called Abroad that I um, served as a chief mental health officer. This is really bringing all my learning and teaching and practice. Over, you know, I've been in this field for about 30 years now of healing and health and well-being and therapy and coaching. So I feel like it's all kind of one umbrella, but I've been in that field for a long time and really brought a lot of the trauma 
techniques and understanding of how we understand trauma now to date, which is based on neuroscience, into leadership, because there's a lot of trauma at the workplace that people don't want to acknowledge. They will talk about stress and they talk about burnout. They talk about psychological safety, which are all components of becoming trauma-informed. But really at the core is understanding how do we as humans operate when we are under a lot of stress and trauma. Stress and trauma is on a continuum, and I can talk a little bit more about that. But we often like to avoid the word trauma because we think it's a car accident or something very horrific. And that's true. But really, the most pervasive traumas really in our lives are relational traumas, which happen at workplace. So being bullied at the workplace or having a lot of stressors or not getting along on a team. And so when we become trauma-informed, we're learning about how humans process high stress through the body and how their behavior and their emotions are shaped because of it which then impacts any kind of relationship on your team and the organization and your family life and your personal life. So becoming trauma-informed is understanding how we as humans um, are biological creatures and we respond to stressors in particular ways. So that's what really trauma-informed means. And when we become trauma-informed leaders, it means I understand my own nervous system and I understand how my own, what we call dysregulated nervous system, impacts other people. So if I'm getting very stressed and very anxious and I haven't really processed my own stressors, I might get very aggressive with you, Kwame, or I might get very withdrawn or I freeze or have all these kind of behaviors that you then might read as, Manuela, you're being weird or you're being strange to me or being aggressive. But if you have a trauma-informed lens, you might see that I'm actually just very anxious or very frightened or very dysregulated in my emotions. And having that lens then enables you then to say, oh, let me respond compassionately to you. Let me have some understanding. Let me be patient. And so our relationship is a very different quality of interaction and being. Your leadership style improves because of that lens and understanding. It was a very efficient answer because you've answered all of the three questions that I had as follow-ups. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> this is great. That, that's perfect. And and I, I love the, the answer because it was so thorough and it helps us to recognize that this isn't the like something that is soft and woo woo and out there where no. where it has no validity or practicality. This is something that, yes, just as people, it's better for you to be able to regulate your emotions and have better yes. mental health and stability just as people. That's true. But then let's say yes. you're a competitive person who doesn't care about those type of things. This is still beneficial for you <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because it helps you to be a much better yeah. leader. And when when we had the opportunity to, to present in uh, in San Diego together, listeners, I love presenting. I love talking. I love mm. speaking. I love talking about this type of stuff. Um, this is interview number two out of three interviews for today. And I, I just want more. Right. And so this was mm -hmm. the first time that I felt like I did not want to speak. And here's why, because Manuela went up mm. first and she was dropping so many gems that I said, I don't want to hear this Kwame guy. Can we keep on <laughs> talking, <laughs> talking about this? And you're fun to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So it's so good. And what was really interesting to me was the connection between what you were talking about with the trauma-informed leadership and understanding your body, interoception and all of those things and mm. conflict resolution and negotiation. I remember... <laughs> <laughs> when we were supposed to be meditating, I was there taking notes because I'm like, I don't want 
to lose these thoughts. <laughs> what a bad meditator you are. <laughs> I know. This is great. And you said something in passing in your explanation here, and I want to really zero in on it because it's so important. You talked about how with trauma-informed leadership, we're learning how to process high stress through the body. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I realized is that we are a heady society. So we focus we exclusively almost on our, on our brain and our thought process. And if we want to improve our performance, we have to focus on our brain. And it wasn't until I heard you speak and started to read your book that I started to recognize true connection between the body and mind. Can you go a little bit deeper mm-hmm. into that? I love that you're pointing that out. Also in particular, you're right, we're very heady culture. And then we recognize the value of exercise, right? And But we even often approach our exercise in a very heady way. We don't really spend time really sensing and feeling our body. We kind of work our body out, right, to look better or feel better or because it's good for our health. But there's a whole other approach to um, what I call embodiment, which is really spending the time sensing and feeling. And this is where emotions and sensations also interact. So when we're cultivating really the feeling and sensing body, we're learning how to read our emotions just as they are. But we have often this compartmentalization that anger is bad, sad is bad, grief is bad, you know, I want to be happy and I want to feel good. And we don't really recognize there's a lot of intelligence in our emotions. And there's such, and we need to learn how to be with these emotions and understand them without the charge of it. So when I am angry, I can simply feel the energy, or maybe that's too abstract, but can feel the movement of anger even in my chest, right? So if you're feeling angry, Kwame, where do you feel it in your body mostly? Where do you feel it? I feel it in, I do feel it in my chest. I feel it a lot Mm -hmm. in my shoulders. And yeah, I feel it in my shoulders. They get a little bit higher. Um, And then also my breathing changes. Does your company invest in professional development training? If you believe that your team would benefit from a negotiation workshop, all you need to do is go to our website, fill out the workshop request form, and then we'll set up a time to chat. These workshops are completely customizable and we've done them all around the country. Negotiation and conflict resolution skills are beneficial across all professions, but they're especially useful in procurement, purchasing, sales, sourcing, and contract management. Our calendar is filling up quickly, and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year. If you think you might want one, I'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more. And we will be right back after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Beret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. So what you just did is a kind of what we call a body awareness. So you're scanning your body. I just ask you, where do you feel your emotions, right? The emotion of anger. And then you described it to me. And that's kind of deconstructing it in that moment. So by feeling, oh, my shoulders, my breath is getting more shallow. I feel it in my chest, right? Basically, in that moment, you're deconstructing that emotion versus like, I'm angry and I got to, you know, do something about it or fueling the anger, right? That's fueling the anger. But if you're actually taking the moment, this is where mindfulness comes in or reflection comes in, you're going, oh, how is this actually happening in this moment? My shoulders, my chest, my mind maybe speeds up. So you're noticing. And by doing that, you're not fueling the anger. You're actually having this moment. You're allowing it to be there. And here's the wonderful thing about it. If you're allowing it to be there, the energy and the charge usually dissipates. I no longer have to go act out the anger. I'm just having it and giving it its due. And then I can go the next step. Oh, okay, I can take a breath. I don't need to be angry right now. I can maybe have a little bit more patience. I breathe into my belly. Oh, we call that resourcing. Right? And that moment I can go, why am I, why am I so angry? I've got me so riled up here. But now I can have more choices because the thing about emotions and our trauma moments is they kind of snatch us. They become very involuntary. We don't have consciousness about it, right? So when we have trauma in the past that we haven't processed, it begins to live in our present very strongly. And then we roller coaster with our emotions. I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm, uh, go up and down and up and down. And you're kind of becoming tethered to the roller coaster of your emotions. And it feels out of control. So you don't have to be that way because you can actually go, okay, I have a strong emotion. What's it actually feel like? It's, how do I sense it in my body? And that deconstructing itself and feeling that moment it's quite magical. It, it takes out this intensity and the charge. And then I have choices again. It's like, do I really need to yell at this person right now? I don't really need to do that. Where's this anger coming from? Maybe I just need to complain, but I can complain very calmly. I don't have to yell at this waiter right now, right? <laughs> For not bringing me my food quick enough. Oh, I'm being very impatient. What got me impatient? It's not about the waiter. It's what happened to me maybe five hours ago right, at a meeting. So you're beginning to have more of an intelligence of working with your emotions because anger in itself is not bad. Sadness is not bad. Grief is not bad. All of our emotions are not bad. It's how we relate to it that makes it difficult or challenging. So learning how to be with the discomfort of emotion, learning how to de just deconstruct it, learning the language of the body, which is really sensations and feelings, so learning how to be with that is really quite the recipe of understanding our own emotional life, our traumas, and then we become intelligent how we use uh, our own experience going forward. This is really, really interesting because I think when we think about Western society, 
when mm. we think about solving problems, we solve problems through what we would describe as proactive action. We have to do mm -hmm. something. We allocate mm -hmm. efforts into addressing the situation. And so mm -hmm. a lot of times when people ask me about managing emotions in difficult conversations, first of all, they're focusing on other people. They think they're stable and other oh, people need to chill. That's mm -hmm. one thing to explore at a later date. Mm -hmm. um, but when they're talking about managing their own emotions, I think a lot of times people are looking for quick fixes, not just how yeah. can I manage my emotions? How can I do it quickly? And how can I get to a place of stability so I can perform faster? And so essentially, it's not really honoring the complex nature of emotions, but it's just mm -hmm. saying, this is something that I don't want and I'm pushing it down. And I think right. one of the things that holds people back from understanding themselves on a deeper level and managing their emotions is their desire to get rid of it so quickly. And what mm -hmm. you've talked about here is the value in learning how to sit with that emotion, being at mm -hmm. peace with mm -hmm. that emotion, feeling it and carrying mm -hmm. and understanding the message that it carries. And so there mm -hmm. requires a mindset shift to even be willing to accept that as a possible alternative <laughs> to just getting rid of the emotion. Yeah. It requires some training, actually, right? So we need to train because we're often not taught that. And it's uncomfortable. We also need to recognize that emotions are uncomfortable. They should be. They're our alarm system, right? So they, that's, there's a reason for that, that, that we are feeling uncomfortable. So if you go back to trauma, if you look at the fight, flight, freeze, and appease, those are kind of the responses that we have to a traumatic situation, we are equipped with those responses in our body that are coupled with emotions in order to survive a threatening situation, right? So way back when we had to run away from the saber-toothed tiger, it was a really great idea that we, you know, we froze and the tiger didn't want to eat us or we ran away and we outran the tiger or we fought them with all that we got and survived, hopefully, um, <laughs> so that we have all these um, biological um, defense mechanisms to survive. But when the danger is over, we usually discharge this. And we discharge it through the body, through shaking, through crying, for having emotions, right? And that completes a cycle. So when we experience a high threat situation, we discharge it. And when we have safety, here's the problem. When we don't have safety, when we're not in a safe environment, um, then we cannot discharge those experiences in our body. And then they begin to live or stay in the body as memory. And sometimes memory without content. They become memory in terms of pattern in the body, tensions in the body. Uh, often we don't understand quite what it's connected to, but they become then habits and patterns. So, and then when we're later on, um, we're no longer in that threat, but maybe we're in a social situation where somebody is emotionally hostile, or we're getting shunned, or we don't feel like we belong, or all those very core emotions of humans, those feelings in the body get triggered again. And now I'm, I'm behaving as if I'm running away from the tiger, the saber-toothed tiger. So the body remembers how it felt to be under threat. But I'm in a social situation, or I'm on a team, or in an organization, or in my relationship, right? But I'm behaving as if I'm under threat. Listeners, when you have the opportunity to, to speak to incredible authors, what's funny is that you might speak to the author and then it reminds you of a yeah. story that you heard. And then you remember the story that you heard was in the book that they wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Which story did you remember? <laughs> I was thinking about the, the story in the book where you talked about the woman who was uh, had that fear of basements. 
Do you remember oh, the story? Yeah. yeah. Actually, I was going to tell the story. Maybe it makes more sense for you to tell the story because you, uh, you, wrote you read it. it just recently. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. I am glad I'm not the only person who does this because sometimes people quote my work to myself. I'm like, wow, that's really good. Who, who said that? They're like, uh, that was your book. Did you write it? I was, like, I was under trauma. I'm trying to forget that experience of writing a book. But anyways, yes. So the story goes um, this woman, she would have really strong feelings of anxiety whenever she she would smell mold or was in like a dark, damp type of area and or a dark place. And it was mm-hmm. kind of like an irrational level of discomfort that she was feeling, never mm-hmm. really understood why. Um, and it turned out that when she was a toddler, maybe two, three, four years old, she had an experience where she was being watched by her grandfather who fell down the stairs in the basement and there was nobody else around. And so she was by herself. And so she just had to be with her grandfather as her grandfather slowly died as a baby. She couldn't mm-hmm. do anything about it. And it didn't really create a crystallized memory that she could truly access mentally. But it's like you said, the body remembered it. And so whenever Mm -hmm. she was in a circumstance or in a place that reminded her of a basement, her body would respond with that trauma Mm -hmm. response, but she never fully understood why until she was Mm -hmm. made aware of that story. Right, until she processed in therapy. Part of it is that the olfactory sense is the oldest and is the one that also alerts us the first to any kind of danger. So smells, that's why we're often, you know, triggered by smells and then sound also, the part of our ancient neurological system. So that's often like that. People have smells and they go like, oh, I don't know why I'm being triggered. And then they're having the fight, flight, freeze and the peace responses come up because they're triggered by a sound or a smell or a touch. Right? And that they don't have necessarily the memory, um, concrete memory, especially if they're under three, to really remember what actually happened. So it often comes through body experiences like that. Because the way our brain develops um, until age three, we have a lot of neural growth. And it's very sensei. The young child, is their whole world is feeling and sensing. And so these traumas that are experienced uh, under three, but also, you know, until about six as well, it's very sensate based. So, you know, clients often come in and they say, gosh, I know something happened. I don't know what. Well, they can't often remember, quote, what happened because their body remembers it. They maybe heard a story, but they don't remember a concrete story, but their body is completely remembering the story. And it's often for people who are working on early childhood trauma, it's very confusing because they go like, did it happen? Did it not happen? Right? It can can be quite crazy making. But the experience of terror happened, no matter what the actual story is, but the experience of terror happened. And that's what you can work with. That's what's so beautiful. And this is really the work of uh, somatic experiencing Peter Levine, who I studied with and uh, learned from, where, where, you know, the recognition that trauma really happens in the body. And then we kind of make meaning of what happens through our mind and trying to understand what actually happened. But if you're too young, like under age three, where you don't have a fully developed prefrontal cortex, you can't even understand your experience because you have no context for it, right? So all of your experience is very body-based. So you walk into a room and it feels unsafe and people are smiling at you. So what is the unsafe part about it? There's something that your body recognizes, right? And it could be a glance. And probably you know this, like people can look at you in a funny way or give you a fake smile. It's called the Duchenne smile, by the way, that doesn't feel genuine. And it feels like a threat because it is, right? And if you grew up in an environment where there was a lot of dissonance or disconnect, inauthenticity, then you can feel this. Like, this doesn't feel right to me and I don't feel safe. And the experience of not feeling safe is a very sensate experience. Yeah. And I think, sorry, go ahead. 
No, no, no. But this is why we talk about psychological safety being so important in work environments, right? Because you can say, oh, we create a safe work culture. But if you don't feel safe, that's real. So what is it, right? And what's your body telling you? And it doesn't necessarily mean other people are doing something. It's like, I don't feel safe. So I need to listen to that. So what do I need to do to make myself feel safe? And often it's starting with the discomfort, the feelings, giving it some space, really tuning into it as intelligence, not to fuel a story. And that's really the important part, not to fuel the narrative, but to go, what's actually happening? What is actually happening right now? Is this really true? I'm in this in this room. I feel unsafe. People look really friendly. I feel unsafe. So what's happening right now? Oh, I need to stand up. I need to walk around. I need to get a glass of water. I need to feel my feet on the ground. I need to connect with one person that I feel safe with. Oh, now I'm calming down. Now I'm regulating my own nervous system. And suddenly this room doesn't feel so unfriendly anymore. Very interesting. So I just got triggered. But I could also go in this room. These are terrible people. I never want to be with them again. Run out of the door. And now I have reaffirmed my narrative that the world is unsafe. And people like that are not safe. Right? And that's, unfortunately, a lot of people live in that quite a bit. They fuel the narrative and don't really understand the interoceptive experience and deconstruct it and give it enough space to feel the intelligence of what can be done about that moment. There's a lot of control and choice you actually have. Yeah, it's so interesting because the term interoception, I didn't mm. know of that term at all mm. until I mm. met you, which is fascinating. Mm spending my life dedicated to conflict resolution and having a degree in psychology. The fact that that mm. has never been in my consciousness, I think is indicative of the the challenge that we've been describing, where we are mm -hmm. a heady culture and there's almost like a mm -hmm. bias against something that doesn't have a solution that is head oriented or head centric. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. one of the most liberating things of, about this approach um, for me is that I don't need to fully understand what I'm feeling I just need to feel it and honor it. And yes. that is understanding enough. And that that is something I'd love you to go deeper in because it's almost like mm. internal body language. Yeah. I mean, you start with that, right? You start with what is this? What is this feeling, right? Letting, letting it be there, not having to fight it, make a story about it, push it away. You're just letting it be there. Give it some space. That's that's what I'm. That's that. And you're absolutely right. Earlier said shifting the mindset. You have to shift the mindset that actually all emotions are intelligent. And I really want to repeat that all emotions are intelligent. People don't think that way often. They think, oh, as I said, to categorize. This is good. This is bad. But what if you sit in this mindset that all emotions are intelligent, and I'm having whatever emotion right now. And it's often the one like, yeah, all emotions are intelligent except this one. People will tell you, oh, yeah, all of them, but except this one. Right? Well, that's exactly the one that's now your teacher. That is the teacher, right? The one that you struggle most with. Oh, I'm okay with being sad, but not okay being angry. Usually people struggle with anger a lot, right? Because anger has often this feeling of um, it's bad or causes a lot of damage. But anger in its purest form is actually what I would call discriminating awareness. You actually have a lot of awareness that something is maybe right or wrong, or I need to set a boundary, or something is not okay, or I need to stand up for it, or I need to speak my truth. But you can't get to this knowledge until you give your emotions some space. You don't have to analyze it. You don't have to do anything about it. You're simply allowing it to be there. So let myself feel it. Oh, it's uncomfortable. I feel this heat. Like earlier, I described all these bodily sensations that went with the feeling of anger when I asked you to recall it, right? Oh, that's how I process anger in my body. And what are usually then my behaviors that follow the feeling and the sensation 
Do I lash out? Do I yell at people? Do I get passive aggressive? What are some of my repertoire of how I discharge or offload my anger? Do I need to do that? Right? So because often we feel very involuntary with our emotions. We feel like we have to just like be or do our emotion, right? Especially around conflict. Because you do a lot with conflict and negotiation. And there's a lot of heated emotions, right? But we often believe the intensity of those emotions versus like, oh, there's a lot of intensity. Let me calm this down. Let me regulate. This is the language of the reception and nervous system language. Let me regulate this down. I don't have to have anger go away. But can I use the intelligence of anger to tell me what is actually the next step? Do I need to be very clear or very decisive or very sharp or make a point? And I'm sure you can tell me a lot about that. If I'm negotiating, I need to be clear and I need to be without kind of charge to really be heard. Because when people hear you clearly without the charge, they can actually take your argument or they can be in a negotiation versus defending against the charge and the emotion that you're bringing to the conversation. Because then you're just triggering each other. I'm sure you have a lot to say about that. Interoception is really learning about the skill of inhabiting your feeling and allowing it to be there. And then again, as a deconstructing a little bit, like what am I habitually going towards versus what actually are the choices that I have? So interesting. Tell me what you think about that. Let me uh, allow you to see my mind wanderings here. And if I'm mm-hmm. off on that, let me know where I'm off. Go for it. And no, um, I love it. Yeah. So I, I like the, the teachings of Carl Rogers. And one of the things uh-huh. that he would say in his Rogerian approach is that he likes to think of your body as like your human. Like, what does your mm-hmm. human need? And I've been mm-hmm. looking at it kind of through that lens and just recognizing my human, my body has intelligence. Like you said, it, it, the feelings carry a message and trying to figure out what that is. And almost mm-hmm. in a, a metacognition type of way, having a conversation with my body. Okay, mm-hmm. you're my body, my human, my Kwame mm-hmm. is is feeling mm-hmm. something. It's registering yeah. through my stomach, and it's yeah. it does not feel good. I would prefer not to have mm-hmm. it, but I'm going to sit in it. I wasn't feeling this way in the morning. I wasn't feeling this way when I came back from the gym. But then when I got a message from somebody, that's when I started to feel that. What is that? That's interesting. Mm -hmm. What Mm -hmm. I've found is that separating my body and mind to a certain extent in order to have that kind of almost conversation with my body to see what message it's carrying has been beneficial. But I can also see how that could potentially be problematic because I am adding narratives to something that may not have a discernible narrative. So I would say, going more the somatic approach, soma, by the way, means the body, it's Greek. Um, Going a somatic approach is you would just go like, ah, the stomach, what's it feel and sense like right now? Is it a clenching? Is it tightening? Is it kind of coming in like a little ball? So you're getting very nuanced with what exactly is the sensation. And right there, so much information gets revealed because what happens is you're you're allowing the creativity of your brain to open up versus like, I have a stomach. It must have been because I ate that sandwich or because I had this bad conversation. That's very literal trying to search for me, which is fine. But if you want to go a little deeper to understand really the beauty and the complexity of our emotional and somatic life, you first, you give it space. You literally give it space. Just go, okay, I have this clench or this sensation in my body and then is it bigger is it is it like a ball is it tightening and when you get those little details first of all you're beginning to regulate you're actually calming down the intensity which is always good right? and you're allowing allowing another 
what we call resourcing to come in. You can do even a breath, right? Let me calm it down a little bit. Let me resource my body. And then I begin to shift my perception rather than the kind of what is this and like that, what you call heady, right? That thinking mind, what is this? You're relaxing that. And then you go like, oh, what's the sensation now? Wow, it feels kind of, I feel vulnerable. Oh my God, I didn't realize. I feel like weeping. But you don't get there. Usually to the more tender feelings, usually vulnerability or shame or some kind of sensitivity. We don't get there because we're so defended most of the time. But we get there when we give it a little bit of space and we have this kind approach to the body. The body wants to be invited, not told what to do. If you really want to work with your body-mind, you want to invite the body. Not like, tell me now, what is it? You don't want to have this conversation with the body. The body goes, no. <laughs> I give you more tension. But if you say, hey, you're having a kind of a jumble in the belly there. Let's just breathe into it. Let's just give it a moment of space. Let's just relax into it. Let's really relax into it. Guess what? The body goes, thank you. It goes, you know what? I feel really scared. That conversation really freaked me out. I feel scared about the future or whatever it is, right? Usually it's some kind of vulnerability that we're defended against or some kind of pain that we're defended against. That's usually what's underneath those things. How does it resonate with your stomach right now? <laughs> oh, no, I felt it. It's, you know, it's it's interesting that I, I felt it at that time. Good call out there, by the way. That was good. Um, be, <laughs> because I think that, Again, I'm I'm um, I'm very heady. I'm trying to become a little bit more, have a little bit more of that body intelligence, and mm. I, I'm recognizing that just accepting the fact that releasing a little bit of control is the key to where to getting to where yes. I want to go. That's a scary yes. proposition, and I think a lot of people struggle with that element yeah. of letting go of that control. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a nice little trance that we think we're in control of our lives. <laughs> we are not. We are really not. <laughs> Doesn't mean we can't be ambitious or go for our dreams or none of that or be efficient and productive. All good stuff, right? But we also have some humility towards life itself that we're not in control. <laughs> and so why struggle? Like, just relax into it. You know, it's like, oh, I'm just scared. I'm just vulnerable. Oh, this really got to me. And that's all right. You know, that kind of, you talked about Carl Rogers and his humanistic approach, being a human, right? Being a human is being vulnerable. And there's so much power and strength in being vulnerable. Um, and that's what we connect. It's how this is the beauty, right? So we talked about trauma, but the other piece of, of trauma is also that we're wired for connection. We're also, we're wired for survival, but we're also wired for connection. And how do we get to connection? Through vulnerability, through sharing our humanity, through sharing our struggles, right? And then we feel connected and that's when we belong and we go, oh, you struggle the same thing as I do. Oh gosh, right now I feel not so alone in this world and this life journey, right? But we, we somehow feel like we need to be in control and got it all figured out and charge ahead. And it's, yeah, how has that worked out for humanity so far? <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah. The, I see some flaws in that approach. <laughs> Right. It oh. is. It makes things harder. And then, you know, the truth is we're all vulnerable beings on this planet. And we all want the same thing. We want to be thriving and productive and connecting and have contentment. And I avoid the word happy because that's short lived, but we want contentment and 
right? But uh, we all want the same thing. Oh, this is so good. And listeners, now you can see why I love hanging out with uh, Manuela <laughs> and talking to Manuela all the time. This is great. Well, Manuela, I appreciate this. Mm. It was another masterclass for me. And I know the listeners got a lot out of it too. But before you go, um, let the listeners yeah. know about how they can get in touch with you and um, about your work. Yeah, um, uh, through our institute called embodywise.com. So we teach uh, courses in somatic psychology and uh, and a body of work called Hakomi. It's a mindfulness-based psychotherapy that we teach. And uh, we teach all kinds of different classes and workshops. But through Embodywise, you can reach me. Appreciate it, Manuela. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Kwame. Thanks for having me. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.